And I, yeah, so we have four, one of which is marginal, and that's the one that's preaching. So, good morning. I don't mind if we turn your lights on, too. Would, can we do that? Can we, would you mind? Norm, could you flip those other lights on? Thank you. I want to see who I'm shooting at. Good morning. Okay, not bad, huh? Guy looks like a pastor. An older pastor. I was telling Peggy, I said, I, this is me, okay? This is how it is. And uh, But when I go and look at other church settings online, I was looking at a few different ministries this week online, and uh, they all look like Pastor Rob. And uh, I just, I can't get there yet. You know, the faded jeans and the shirt tail out and the... Uh, I guess it's pretty cool, you know, it's cool, and it's common, and it's current, and it's fresh, but if I did that, I'd feel like I was half-dressed in front of you, so, and you wouldn't want that, but thank you for the compliment. Preaching the Word. We live in an informational society, right, and it's global. I watched, uh, how many of you know who Larry Page is? Anybody know Larry Page? Well, you know his work because he is the CEO of Google. He's brilliant. And uh, he said he wanted to learn something new about the possibility of a new adventure. He thought, well, what, why couldn't we do something like this? And so where was his first stop? He said, I went and searched it put it into my own Google search, and I found things that I didn't know existed. You know, see, he doesn't, Google doesn't know everything. They just can help you find everything. And I know there are other search engines also, and that's, um, but it is amazing, the information that can pour right into your screen within split seconds and bring helpful things to you. I remember the first time I ever searched anything. Um, I think Jessica and Janina were about 10. They were in the local ski program. This is when you had to get up in the morning and turn the crank on your computer to start it. <laughs> and you had to feed the little gerbil and he would run and things was, you know, so this is when you pushed the boot up button and then you went and made coffee to wait for that to happen. And it, you thought it was really fast. <laughs> Boy, that thing is so quick, you know. Um, and they had been in the ski program all day up at the one of the slopes there, or probably at the Snow Summit, and, and she came home with snow blindness. She hadn't taken her little sunglasses or goggles with her that day, and so she was very sick, and we didn't know what to do. And it finally figured out we needed to do something, but it was very late at night, and nothing's open. <clears throat> and I thought, well, this thing's supposed to help me. Let me try this. And within, I think it was four stops, I was at the Army Corps of Engineers uh, medic book. And I was reading the medical book for the Army. And here I found all the symptoms located under snow blindness and what we should do. And we did it, and she was fine. I thought, hey, this thing works. You can get a lot of information. But because of that, we tend to find ourselves stopping there in our culture. We gather information and we know a lot. But information, unless you get a revelation about that information, it's stuck. It's just knowledge. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so this morning it is my prayer, and sincerely I prayed this during our worship singing time, that we would not stop at information today, that I'm going to give some information, probably, that's part of preaching and ministering in this vein. But as we give it, I'm asking God that He will give you revelation. If you'll get revelation this morning on any point of the message, on even one thing, that you get a new revelation that the Holy Spirit breaks to you in your spirit, in your mind, and, and those two converge on a new revelation, then what happens is it leads to transformation. That's what we want. We want to be transformed. When we think of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ walking the, the earth, he wasn't about giving out information to people, although he was doing that. 
things. Constantly preaching the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is among you. Uh, repent. Get ready. John the Baptist even announced. Why? Repent because the kingdom of God is coming. So wherever Jesus went, his kingdom was established. And he was the king of his kingdom. And things were transformed. They weren't just informed. Right? Right? Some people stopped at information, if you think about this with me a little further. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests and the scribes, they were stuck on information. They were trying to figure out, who is this guy? What is he saying? Why is he saying what he's saying? Why is he doing what he's doing? They wanted to know what the information was so they could evaluate it and develop some kind of a reaction or a response. You and I are looking to a living Savior today, the Lord Jesus Christ, who overcame death, hell, and the grave. And he is coming to walking among us regularly, not just here this morning, but in our daily living. He walks with us to bring us revelation that leads to transformation. There may be some things that, that you would like to have eradicated from your life. Things that, uh, habits or patterns or compulsive behaviors and things that just sort of hang on and you, you wish they would just drop off. Well, they will drop off if you get a revelation of Jesus. You know, in that vein. I'm not saying you don't have one now. I'm just saying that when you get a revelation on that topic, when you take the information that's coming into your life and Jesus breathes on that, the Holy Spirit breathes on that, and it comes into revelation, then you get transformed. And after it's over, and that thing goes away, or that habit drops off, you actually are amazed. You go, why, why did, how did it hang on so long? Why? Because that has to come to that point where we pray, God, let that revelation in me now lead to a transformation of my life. I don't want to be the same tomorrow as I am today. That's not in my notes. That's actually more exciting than my message. So I hope you were listening. So, Holy Spirit, I pray right now once again with my friends this morning. We're here we won't, don't want to get stuck on information. Lord, we pray that you will breathe on the information. Touch our spirit man this morning. Not just our minds, but our spirit man. Where life happens. Holy Spirit, touch us inside with revelation. Break the scales off our eyes as we sang earlier. Let, let our eyes be opened. The eyes of our heart. We can grasp some truth this morning that would transform us into being more and more like Jesus. I know you're just anxious to say amen, but we have to say that. We're not done. It's at the end. That's just, we're just getting started, okay? Now, if you, I believe I'm among Bereans this morning. Paul said the Bereans were a more noble group of people because they went home and studied the things he said. They went home and checked out if he was telling the truth or not. They were noble. The Bible says they were a noble people because they knew how to look up the scriptures and dig through it. How many have some kind of a study Bible that you use that's got, you know, some of these notations and margins and cross references? Do you use it? You know, you can learn an awful lot about the Scriptures by just following somebody else's path that they've laid out for you. You know, when you find a little A or a number one, you want to go chase that down and see what it's there for. Kind of like when Jesus said, therefore, therefore, there's a reason that it's therefore. It's, there's a lot of excellent information in the new Bibles that we use today. So, if you're, I believe I'm among Bible students, so I'm just going to, I want to tell a story this morning from Scripture. And you may check it out. If uh, you find out I've taught you some or tried to lead you into some heresy, find me after the service. And you can stone me in the newly cleaned parking lot. <laughs> but I've chosen not to get hung up, I might say, or distracted by trying to do what often happens in the pulpit on Palm Sunday, Easter week. That's where we feel this compulsion to get all of the things that happened during this week in perfect order and have it exactly right and be undisputable that it's correct. You know what? The more I read it, the less I understand it. I don't get all of the order. I even have a Reese's Chronological Bible that puts it in order for me, and I disagree with it. <laughs> That's pretty arrogant, really. But we've arrived at this calendar period that we call Holy Week. Now, that... that 
Holy Week was given to us as a title in the 3rd and 4th century. Somewhere between 2nd and 4th century, they started calling it Holy Week. Some of us like to call it Passion Week. Passion Week comes from the word suffering in the New Testament, which we find in Acts chapter 1-3, where Luke is writing, saying, I'm, I'm writing this all out for you, O Theophilus, to let you know everything that the Lord Jesus did from and about His suffering. This passion of Jesus, it's called. So we oftentimes call it Passion Week. It's the seven days that starts today and leads through Saturday, which means that from now in the next six days, part of what we do is we try and recall the events of Jesus' final ministry in Jerusalem and in and around, around the city of Jerusalem that approaches His trials, His suffering, the cross, His death, His burial. But Easter is another week. So we don't get to talk about that. We have to leave the He is risen part till the next week starts. But in this week, these seven days starting today, we just seem to want to rehearse what happened. What steps did Jesus take? What teachings did He give during this final week? You know, the... The events that took place during this week in history were going to alter the future forever, right? They were unfolding then, but now we see that they have literally altered everything. Everything's changed since this week went past. Yet, if you stop and think about it, which is what I want to do this morning, I want us to stop and slow some things down again. Think about how many people were directly affected by these events. Think for a minute, the whole globe. Zoom in with your Google map. <laughs> Thank you, Larry Page. Zoom in to that little spot, Jerusalem, which is the center of the world, really. And then zoom down into the streets and we're going to talk about the Hosanna moment here and how many people were really involved. Now, the Bible says the whole, the whole city was shaken. And the word used for shaken in the Scriptures is the same word that would be used if you were talking about an earthquake. So we understand that. So when Jesus comes in and they're all shouting Hosanna, we call it the triumphal entry down from uh, Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. As He's coming in, it says the whole city is shaken like with an earthquake. And people want to know what's going on. But if we zoom back out on our map, we realize there's very few people in all of the world that are being directly touched and affected by these events. And in fact, the rest of the world probably doesn't. Not only do they not know about it, they don't care about it. And we, I kind of lamented as I thought about it. That's just unfair. That's just not right. It was such an important week. But in our generation today, you know, that, that we're, our estimates are that one-third of the world's population which is about 2.4 billion people. If Jesus was to come back today, those 2.4 billion would gladly kneel and say, this is the Lord. This is the one we've been waiting for. One-third of the world's population. The other two-thirds, which is about 4.8 billion people, two to one here, still haven't been affected, still haven't been touched, still don't know or haven't decided about this Son of God, this Son of Man. Who was He and what did He do? Why is it important? It hasn't, erect, it hasn't rocked my life. It hasn't affected my life that I know of. And so I'm just going on with life as I know it. Or I'm totally oblivious to the fact that He ever existed or that He's alive today. We still have quite a job on our hands. The one-third of us that would bow our knee to Christ are commissioned still from Scriptures to reach the rest of the world. It's upon us. It's our task. The Bible says, Jesus told us, I want you to go into all of the world and make disciples of every nation. And then I'll return. And while maybe mankind was not touched on a large scale that day, all of the principalities and powers went through a change. I'm thinking outside the box a little, right? I'm not talking about the planet Earth, terra firma. You know, that's what Winnie the Pooh calls it, or Tigger, terra firma. 
talking about everything above the earth, where the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and the demonic realm, it says he is the ruler of the earth. He's the ruler. He's the prince of the power of the air. He dominated. But that day, this week that we're talking about, all of that was about to change. While not all of mankind would know what happened on that day or those days in Jerusalem, principalities and powers were very aware. They were keenly affected, and everything was changing. All of the way that they would be able to operate in the future was going to be altered. Every one of them would now have to bow the knee to Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And from that point on, all of the activity of the principality of the air in his demonic realm would be trespassing. Jesus was taking back authority. Jesus was taking back leadership. He would become the rightful and righteous ruler forever and ever of the entire universe and all of his creation. We call that the kingdom of God has come. And it's a mystery at times because we say the kingdom of God has come and it's now, but it's not yet. It's still unfolding. It's still working out. And you and I are part of that process. As the body of Christ, we are enforcing the kingdom of God in the earth today. Where we go, the kingdom goes. you imagine that? Where you go. Not where you go with a group. Just where you go. Jesus lives within you. The kingdom of God is going there. When you go to work, when you go to your home, when you go to the school, when you get on your job, the kingdom of God has come. And its rulership is here now in you, but maybe it's not in everyone around you yet. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying his death, the death that he would die. There are 15 of these pages. That was one. Just kidding. And it's only four. At that time, I, had, I brought a whole roll of, you know, paper. It's a big, long thing. I said, I just have a few things I want to say. And I let go of it and went, <laughs> rolled down the aisle. And people just got fainted. <laughs> Why do they invite that guy to come here? Jesus said in Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Two-thirds of the world still waits for us to share good news with them. One of the delightful parts of this week, in fact, Palm Sunday, for me is when in Mark chapter 14, verse 9, when Mary anoints Jesus with the costly perfume, And the disciples get a little upset. And Judas, the money bag holder, says, we could have sold that and got a lot of money to help the poor. But the Bible states specifically that he didn't say that because he liked the poor so much. He said it because he was the guy that took care of the money bag and he was always getting into it for himself. And he saw, oh my gosh, there's like another hundred bucks here. And he couldn't get his hands on it because it was poured all over Jesus. And Jesus said, calm down, boys. <laughs> and calm down. You're going to have the poor with you forever. But me, you won't have forever. And what she's done is so important, you don't even realize it yet. What she's done is she has anointed me for burial. And what she has done will be talked about from now until the end, wherever the gospel is preached. And I make the point again this morning. We're talking about the good news and we're talking about Mary her, she, she, her story goes right along with the gospel. She did a very important thing that day. Where's all this leading today? I would Eventually, I want to get us to a little small group dinner. And no, I'm not providing lunch. I want to point us to a place in the Bible where it's recorded that a group of friends got together to have dinner. The disciples were there. Simon the leper hosts the dinner. Interesting fellow. I assume that it wasn't his last name. Simon the leper. 
was not probably his official nomenclature, but it is what the Scripture gives us to know who we're talking about. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us whether Simon the leper was healed or not. It's, it's, it's undisclosed. He's referred to numerous times in the New Testament, but it's never talked about when he got healed. <laughs> but he invited everybody over for dinner. Well, I guess that's a choice you're going to have to make. Are you going to go or not? Jesus went. He was there. Lazarus was there. Martha and Mary. In fact, the Bible says Martha was serving. We know Martha as the server, right? She was serving, but she wasn't even at her own house. She was at Simon's house, and she's still serving. And Mary's still doing what Mary does. She's anointing Jesus. I mean, real ministry is going on in this dinner, and that's where I want us to get to before we're done today. But for the sake of what we normally do, Pastor Rob read earlier from Matthew 21, common in three Gospels, Jesus telling his two disciples to go and find the colt. Jesus began during this week to fulfill prophecies deliberately. He was in charge. This is the Son of God in action. He's marching for the cross, and he's going to start fulfilling prophecies. Go get the cult on which no one has ever sat. Significant, prophetic, Zechariah 9.9. Your king is coming to you riding on a colt, the fold of an ass. He says, I'm just going to fulfill this today. Is that all right, guys? Go get the cult. It's significant. We read these things quickly, but that's why I try and slow them down a little bit. I need it to slow down. I want to see the parts inside. If they stop you and say, why are you untying the colt? Just simply say, the Lord has need of it. Now that just goes by in English for us. But in the Greek, and what Jesus said, probably in Aramaic, tell them the supernatural owner of all things needs him. The kurios, the Lord. We just say Lord. Not quick. But the word is kurios, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And if I'm not, maybe you'll never know unless you're a good Bible student. You'll go find out. Call me this week and help me. That's fine. I'm good with correction and improvement. But he's saying, tell them the supernatural ruler of the universe needs the donkey. <laughs> and they go. They run over there. They find him, just like Jesus said. They're on time. The guy says, hey, where are you going with my colt? I said, what's well, telling? <laughs> the supernatural owner of the universe needs it. <laughs> go ahead. No question there. It had never been set on, never been used. This is so significant. In all of Scripture, those things dedicated for God's use alone aren't used for anything else. Never. doesn't matter if it's a fork in the temple you know, or a little shovel for taking out the ashes from the burnt altar in the temple or the tabernacle. Once those things are dedicated to the Lord, they're, they're, they were anointed with blood, actually. There was blood put on them in the Old Testament. And they were set apart, separated. This is where we get the word sanctified. This was set apart. You as a saint are set apart. When you come to Christ, you, the blood of Jesus, comes on you and you are set apart. And now you're holy because He makes you holy. And as you're set apart, you're for His use alone. And this little cult has never been used for anything and Jesus says that's the way it should be because it's for the Holy One. It's for His use alone. Nobody else gets to use it. Now I'm just, I don't know if it's broad-minded or strange-minded enough that I kind of wonder what happened to that little donkey afterwards. Did they just put him out the pasture and say, buddy, you get to run free the rest of your life. Nobody's riding you but Jesus. And he just got to prance around and have fun grow up and tell the story to all the other donkeys. I don't know. As I heard somebody whisper to their friend, that guy really is kind of weird. He's out of the box already. 
They're starting down the hill. Jesus is on there throwing their cloaks and, and palm branches into the road. And if you look back into the Old Testament, like one specific time when Jehu was going to be made king and uh, God had ordained Jehu to be king, he was sitting around a little campfire with his friends when the prophet came and told him, said, come here, I need to tell you something. You're going to be the king. He said, okay. He goes back to his friends at the campfire and they said, what did he tell you? Yeah, they told me I was going to be the king. Really? You, Jehu, are you kidding? And the first thing they do is they pull off their coats and they throw them on the ground on the steps where he's sitting. He said, here, sit on our coats. And then they went, hail, King Jehu. I can see these guys around a campfire just chiming, goofing off with their friend. But he's fulfilling prophecy. And the cordial and right thing to do in honoring a king, traditionally, was to take your cloak and put it down for him to walk on. You're talking about your subjection, your submission. And I, I, maybe I take it too far, but I don't think there was a string of cloaks down the road. I think they put him down. He went over and they went to the back, got it again, ran through the front, put it down again. I think there was a rotation happening because it said there was a crowd behind him, always moving and shouting, Hosanna! This is it. It's the Messiah. He's come to save us. This is it. It's going to be over. He's going to establish a kingdom. We're going to reign again. It's coming. Sorry. (laughs) Quinn, it's just Grandpa Jeff. But it also says there was a crowd in front. And the the Bible tells us that down in Jerusalem, they got wind of the fact that Jesus was coming into town that day. And so they grabbed the palm branches in their cloaks. And the Bible says this crowd ran up the road to meet him as he was coming. And then all of them together, this great cacophony of sound and shouting and giving God glory, singing Hosanna. And as they were speaking Hosanna, they were fulfilling more scripture. Psalm 118, verses 25, 26, 27 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, shouting and glorifying to the point that the scribes and the Pharisees, especially the Pharisees, said, Jesus, look at what your disciples are saying. They're calling Hosanna, son of David, equality with God. This is worship. No man gets worship. Only God gets worship. Jesus, you need to tell these disciples to be quiet. Another proof of his godness. He didn't stop them. If he were a man, and if I were a man, I would stop them and say, that belongs to God. Don't give me that. Jesus didn't stop them. By not stopping them, he was declaring, I am God. Sometimes we read right past that and don't see it. And he actually, I, I, I see Jesus as fairly a happy person. Do you? Or you see him as stern and tough you know, did he spin around on the donkey and say, hey, don't tell me that. If these guys quit yelling, the rocks will cry out. No. I see him going, <laughs> almost like, you guys still don't get it. Listen, I could tell them to stop, but if they do, the rocks, another part of my creation would have to take over. Let's let them go. Because I deserve worship. And all of creation, we sang it this morning, all of creation glorifies Him. And if we don't, something will. There are so many psalms that says, let the mountains and the hills bow down before Him. Let the trees of the field clap their hands. All of creation responds to the Creator because that's why it's designed as it is. The problem with humans is He designed us to be a reflection of His glory and to give Him praise, but not often do we do it. Now, I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying mankind. I know you do it all the time. I can see it in your face. You're part of the, the right part of it. Eh? Wouldn't it be great if I went to turn the page I had to do two? Because I'd already done them. You'd be going, now. we're almost done. Now, those are some of the things we tend to focus on when we talk about a day like today. 
but I'm looking for a little twist. Something you may never have seen. I don't know that I've seen. But I hope we get a revelation on this next part. John chapter 12. Yes, we do use the Bible here (coughs) sometimes. In fact, the things I was telling you just now, you've read, you've seen, you've heard. But they come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a weaving together of the writers of the New Testament that present us all these accounts and realities of what Jesus did. John chapter 12 says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, lived. There they made him a supper, and him is capitalized, so it's talking about Jesus. There they made a supper for Jesus. And Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now it doesn't say it here, but in the Gospels it says they're in the home of Simon the leper. And we could read on because it's, you know, Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Because he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used, he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The thing that I want to camp on is that Jesus has just made his way in the last weeks of his life on earth all the way from the northern border of Israel in Caesarea Philippi, where he challenged his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I am? And they had a response. He said, Well, who do you say that I am? Which was a more important response. And Peter says, Well, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And he confirms with him and says, Well, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but Father in Heaven told you about this. And he says, and on this rock of revelation, on this very truth that God is our rock, I'm going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I did not know this until last weekend, that there is a cave configuration in Caesarea Philippi that's been called the gates of hell for 3,000 years. I wish I had a picture of it. I saw a picture of it last week. And I can imagine that Jesus was standing near that place with his disciples, asking him these questions. He says, I'm going, to build, I'm going to build a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, he was a great teacher. He would have used the moment. But Jesus has just made his way all the way back to the length of the country. And in fact, on the way, he was going to go through Samaria. And you know the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along. And, and he planned to go to a town, and they said, oh, well, you're heading for the Passover. You're a Jew, and you're heading for the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. You can't stay here. And that's when James and John said, hey, should we call down a little fire from heaven on them? <laughs> Jesus said, just relax, guys. Come on. We can go over here to this other little place and stay there the night. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so they went someplace else for the night. And as they're making their way back, you come through Jericho, and then you arrive at Bethany and Bethphage, and then you descend the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. In fact, it was that place in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus, and after those questions, who do they say? Who do you say? He said, this is, he began to tell them all the way up north, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to they're kill me there. He started telling them. 
Peter took him aside and said, that's not going to happen. I, I still see Jesus as happy. Peter, you knucklehead. Man. Even if he said, get behind me, Satan. It's like, wake up, Peter. Smell the coffee. This is going to happen. He challenged them at that point. Will you follow me? The one that follows me, we're taking it all the way. This is no pleasure cruise. This isn't a simple walk in the park. I'm on my way to be crucified. You, go, you don't get it yet. The Bible over and over says he told them three or four times on this journey from north to south, they're going to kill me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to persecute me. They're going to hurt me. And then they're going to kill me. And the Bible says they were like glazed over and they didn't get it. It just didn't sink in. I'm not sure it would have sunk in for me either until after Jesus rose from the dead and they went, Oh, that's what he was talking about. Yeah. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't have my tone of voice, I'm sure, but it does tell us that. In fact, as he's closing in on Bethany, he's coming through Jericho, and, and I'm trying to get this into a story so you can see it happening. Him and the guys are walking along. They're making their way, and here we come. It says they're coming into Jericho, and there's a group of blind guys. In the Gospels, it says there's a group of blind guys, and they hear it's Jesus. So they start yelling, hey, hey, Jesus, son of David. A phrase only given for the Messiah. Son of David, heal us. What do you want from me? So we want to be able to see. Okay. And he heals them. Further, he goes through Jericho. And this is kind of where I don't get it all figured out. The date line and the chronology doesn't always work for me. But I'm not the one that wrote the Bible. I'm okay with trusting the one who did. It says coming into Jericho, there were blind men. It also says leaving Jericho, there were blind men. I guess they all lived on the outskirts. But on the, uh, on the outskirts part, it says that the guys, they give us his name. You know him. Blind Bartimaeus. So as Jesus is leaving Jericho, there's Bartimaeus. Son of David, what do you want? I'd like to be able to see. Okay. And he heals him. And the Bible says at the end of John chapter 11 that he followed them. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? He followed them. So I'm assuming, this is totally out of assumption, that if he followed them and the next stop was Bethany and the supper that was made for Jesus, I'm thinking blind Barimaeus was having dinner with him. Like he's following them. He's in the crowd now with the twelve and Jesus. Oh, and by the way, on the way out of Jericho, there was another little fellow that Jesus talked to. You might remember his name. His Zacchaeus. Right? He lived in Jericho. And this is when that happened. What, do I, what am I telling you these things for? You know them. You're aware of them. Jesus is on the march to the cross. He's about to be honored with this great descent into Jerusalem. But all the way down, he is dispelling the kingdom of Satan. He is defeating the devil. He's just taking control. He said the Son of God is coming. He's not proud about it. He's not arrogant. He's just doing it. He's saying, I'm God. You need to be healed. Let's take care of that. Let me be healed. You need. In fact, when we get to dinner, we'll see the guy I raised from the dead. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> be healed, Zacchaeus. I'm wondering if it wasn't Friday, they were traveling, and the sun might be going to set, and it was going to be a Sabbath, which was a limited travel day for the Jews. So Zacchaeus is up in the trees. Says, Zacchaeus, hey, you know, you need to come down because I need to go to your house today. You know, tomorrow's the Sabbath, and we're going to go on into Jerusalem and Bethany on Sunday for the triumphal entry. But right now, I need a place to stay for the next day. Can I? We're going to go to your house. And the, Zacchaeus gets saved and becomes the son of Abraham, right? I mean, these are living stories of truth. Jesus is making a difference in every life he's touching all along the way. At the very end of the passage about Zacchaeus and the ministry in his home, we get Luke 19.10 where it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was rejoicing that Zacchaeus had come to faith. But he was also exercising 1 John 3.8 where he says that this is the ministry of Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. Because it's written down, I'll read it. 
That way I can hold it at arm's length from me in case you don't like it. But it says, Jesus is kicking tail on the way to the cross. (laughs) Who said that? I did. And all of this leads to supper. They made him a supper in verse 2. It's a small group dinner. Friends are together. The disciples are there. Real ministry is going to take place to the degree that we still talk about it after 2,000 years. How would you like to have a life group like that? Where real ministry takes place and you're eating dinner together. And miraculous things go on so that it's talked about in ensuing generations, not just this week, what happened at your house. Real ministry. Prophetic stuff is going on. Simon the leper is hosting. It's not his last name. I mentioned that before. I'm thinking that Lazarus is there who had not long ago been raised from the dead. I don't know how much earlier that had been. It could have been a month or two that he was raised from the dead. So Jesus is sitting at dinner. Come on. And on this side, he's got Simon the leper. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Can you pass that for me? And over here, Lazarus, how are you feeling, by the way? Man, I, I feel alive, Jesus. <laughs> I'm feeling good. I mean, after that event, how could I say I'm not feeling good, right? I mean, you raised me from the dead. This is awesome. And here comes Martha. She's got another plate of probably, you know, tortillas maybe, or tamales. I don't know. You have a little bread. And, 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 and it's a family scene. They're enjoying each other's company. And in in Jesus' heart, he knows everything that's about to happen. Because he's already told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to hand me over. They're they're going to uh, interrogate me. Then they're going to turn me over to the Gentiles who are going to beat me. They're going to whip me. They're going to scourge me. He even is so specific because they're going to spit on me. And then they're going to crucify me. He knows it all. And it's a week away. No. This is what I'm, I'm looking at when I read this little verse 2. And a supper was made for him. Boy, I'd want to have a nice meal with my friends before I was leaving. What about it? Think about it. What about if you were getting ready to leave the country? Here, you're going to leave Big Bear. You're going to leave the country. We'd want to get together and have dinner. We'd want to encourage each other. We'd want to share the stories of faith and life that we've shared so far together. We'd want to relax a little bit. Before you have to go and pack and before the, the, the immediacy of the moment starts predicting what you have to do on a daily basis, find your passport, get everything ready. You know, busy, busy. You're too busy to, to relax. So a week ahead of time, they say, let's have dinner. They don't really know what's coming up. They're not. But I think it's significant to me to see that this is how it unfolded for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was with his friends. He was with those he'd been doing ministry with for three years. They're eating. Martha's doing what she's doing. She's serving. We're not going to get after her today because that's just her nature. She just loves to serve. You know? And while we're not looking, Mary's sneaking up with the whole worship aspect again because that's Mary. She goes, I know what I could do. Martha's got the tamales taken care of. So let me go get my alabaster box from home because they live in the same town. She runs home, gets her alabaster box, comes back, and she dumps it on Jesus' head. Now, some versions say, and we might think there were two different times this happened. That's okay. I'm not going to argue the point. Some say that she poured on his feet and wiped it off with her hair. Another one says she dumped it on his head, and it was a mess. And the whole room smelled. And while Jesus knew he was being, and said, I'm being anointed for burial, they didn't get that part. Mary was acting prophetically. And we still talk about it today. You know, Jesus could have got a seat at the table with the Pharisees down in Jerusalem if he'd just gone a couple extra miles. Right? He could have got dinner with Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas was looking for him anyway. If you're a Bible student, you know what that means. Right? Caiaphas told his group, somebody needs to die for us this year. And he even prophesied, not knowing what he was saying, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as the high priest, he spoke prophetically and said, one of us needs to die for the nation. And then he put the uh, all points bulletin out, the APB as I was called. Look for Jesus. If you find him, tell us where he is because we want to go capture him. 
to get your eyes on Lazarus. We want him too. There were a few curious Jews there. The Bible says. They wanted to see Jesus, but they really wanted to see Lazarus. The guy raised from the dead. And where was he? Sitting right next to Jesus, probably. As Jesus sat between him and Simon the leper. I do believe Simon was healed. Otherwise, it would have been a small dinner. It's just my thought. And then I stretch it further, and I go, Bartimaeus is there. Thinking, that's what that bread looks like. I've felt it all my life, but now I see what it looks like. That's cool. Come on, this is real stuff, right? I'm not being too weird. I'm just breaking it down where simple people live, like me. I mean, could you imagine Bartimaeus? Maybe he's trying to be composed, but if I was him, I'd be like, can I see that? <laughs> can I see that? Are you doing, can I see that? I, hey, I can see that. That's the point. I can see that. I can see Jesus. I mean, this is real life. Real people having a real good time before a disaster was about to take place. And they were enjoying each other. Imagine, I wrote this. That's not how that should have sounded. (laughs) Imagine, I wrote that. Imagine with me that you're leaving home and family and friends. Wouldn't you love a supper together? One week before you leave, just days before you pack and deal with the most difficult separation of your life. To sit with friends, eat, relax, reflect, and talk. Stay up late. Snack with the special close ones that will stay up late with you. Like Matthew. (laughs) Not not talking about Matthew the tax collector. I'm talking about Matthew Hastings. He was the one that was here until 1 o'clock last night. Oh, I love it when you do that. (laughs) Chat with the leper who's healed. And he's hosting you in his home. And on the other side, the man you raised from the dead not long ago. Sisters are there. It's a family reunion of your family in faith. The disciples you've spent three years living with to prepare them to take the coming good news and spread it to the entire known world. It's just a week off. A few days of connecting before a major period of life and death that will rock the universe. Jesus was and is relational in his ministry. That's a key point I'd like you to hear this morning. Jesus is relational. He's not about information. He's about living and breathing and walking and talking and eating with you at your house. Maybe this afternoon when you go to lunch, you could put a chair there and say, Jesus is here. Because he goes with us wherever you go. He hangs with you. He loves you. We could have a similar lifestyle. Relational among the body of Christ. We could open that lifestyle up to a few curious Jews, so to speak, that came to see something that happened at your life group or in your congregation or in your work at a moment when something was necessarily uh, pressing and you as the believer in the group was able to minister to that moment. And others are drawn to that. So you open your dinner up a little bit. Let a few of those guys in there. There's a saying that says we should love people and use things. We live in a culture that designs use people and love things. It's real simple. Love people, use things. Don't use people and love things. Have grace for one another. Bear with one another. In fact, the Bible says to bear one another's burdens. By doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love one another. That's what... You may have heard the phrase Monday Thursday. It's coming this week. Where do you get a word like Monday? M-A-U-N-D-Y. Or A-Y maybe. Monday? 
Monday? Couldn't you say Monday? <laughs> no, it means New Commandment Day. Monday is, comes from the Latin phrase about the, the, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. So we call it Monday, Thursday, when they had dinner. Four things that Pastor Floyd and I have spent a lot of time hammering out together. He calls me the serial killer, you know, because every Tuesday I go to his house and we eat cereal together. He goes, uh-oh, the serial killer's here again. And we just, we take the gloves off and we go at it for finding truth and discussing what's on our hearts and minds together. And we share faith together. And it's not exclusive. It's just something we started doing, I don't know, maybe eight or ten years ago. And we just, didn't, we just forgot to quit. It's cost him a lot of cereal. <laughs> Ask Darlene. Is he coming still? i got to buy more of that stuff. Sometimes I don't leave until it's time for lunch. It's so fun. But four things we have come to agree on. I put it in my notes, not just here, but in my own notes, in my heart, my mind, and in my computer. There are four points of agreement that we've come to. One is that all of us need to have a spiritualistic worldview. Jesus had a spiritualistic worldview. Everything was not about the natural and things you could see, touch, taste, smell, and feel. He had a spiritualistic worldview, and on his walk from the north to the south, on his way to the cross, he was dispelling principalities and powers, and he was pushing back darkness, and he was healing people who were afflicted, and he was raising the dead. He was dealing in the spirit realm. He had a spiritualistic worldview that was more to be about than what I can see. So when you get into rough spots in your situation, you need to lift up your eyes. Maybe you need to close your eyes and lift up your spirit, man, and say, what's going on here that I can't see? Where are the powers? Where are the pushings? Where's the pressure coming from? And if it's from the enemy of your soul, then you move into the scriptures that says, I give you all authority and all power over all the principalities and powers of the earth and the principality of the air, and nothing shall by any means harm you. You need to take authority and tell them to get lost. Say, in the name of Jesus and by the covering of the blood of Jesus, you have no place in my home. You have no place in my work. You have no place in my children. I take this authority in Jesus' name. Not because I'm strong, but because He is. And I have a spiritualistic worldview. That's one application of that. Another thing is that we talked about earlier, kingdom perspective. Number two, kingdom perspective. We have a perspective that says the kingdom of God is here now. But it's not fully yet. There's more coming. One day, Jesus, everything will come back to him. It says everything, even the last enemy death, will have to bow at his feet. And when he does, it says he'll take all of those kingdoms and he'll turn them over to his father. And it'll be done forever. And we're going to go into eternity dancing and shouting and rejoicing and doing some pretty important things. But we have a kingdom perspective. It's not all about right here, right now. It's not that temporal. And I can go and I can invite His kingdom to come and His will to be done. And when Jesus taught us to pray that prayer, kingdom of God come, will of God be done, the inference is kingdom of God come. Right here, right now. Will of God be done right here, right now. That's how He taught us to pray. So we take that lifestyle and say, I have a kingdom perspective. It's not just about my job or the smallness of my situation. There's bigger stuff going on. The third thing I mentioned earlier, too, was that Jesus was about relational ministry. That's why I get so stuck on things like, and a supper was made for him. It's not a deep theological topic. You know, it's not one of the big things you find in the theology books that are this fact. It's never even included there. That's why I look for them. I go, wait, Jesus was relational. Here's a supper being made. Stop. Think about it. What happened there? Look who's here. Martha's serving. Mary's doing her thing. Lazarus. Bartimaeus. Simon the leper. This is a great hoedown here. I, I want to be at dinner with these guys. The disciples are there. You know, they got the extended group. You know, some fit at the table. Some are spread around the living room. They're sitting on the floor. Hey, pass me another matzah. Whatever. Enjoying life together. Relational ministry. Jesus did most of his ministry in a relational setting. Right? He'd go out and teach the crowds. That's relational. But then afterwards, he'd gather his 12, take them off by themselves and say, look, did you guys get what we were doing today? Did you see what happened? 
Let's talk about it. What did you notice? I noticed that we started with two fish and a loaf of bread. And I got this basket. Can you explain that to me? No, I can't explain that. It's just going to be okay, all right? Yeah, okay. Okay. And they all gathered the next day looking for the next meal. If you look at the Bible, they all came back and the disciples were looking for Jesus. Hey, the crowd's forming. We're going to do the dinner thing again. You got your leftovers? I got mine. <clears throat> and they find him. He's out praying. They say, hey, Jesus, they're, they're gathering. Let's do the fish thing again, okay? And, he's, and he says, no, I've got some other people I have to minister to, so we're moving on. We are? Bring your leftovers. Okay. Relational ministry. This is how we should work with each other. It's not about how smart you are or I am or how much we know. It's about how, how can we get along? How can we bear one of those burdens? How can we fulfill the law of Christ? How can we love one another to the point where, you know what? You're a knucklehead, but I love you anyway. Next week, I'll be the knucklehead. And you love me. How's that? Well, let's get together on Friday and talk about it, knucklehead. And the fourth thing that we've agreed on in these times together, at the very end of this, is grace by us. There's a grace bias. We're not caught up in the law anymore. Graham Cook said something on a recording that I heard. I don't think I've shared this here, but it rocked my world. He said, I'm a Gentile. <laughs> I went, hey, me too. Okay. So he said, so Jesus didn't come to make me a Jew. He came to make me a Christian. In fact, the middle wall of the partition has been taken down between Jew and Gentile, all to be made one. He didn't try to make us all Jewish. <laughs> Sorry, you know, a little carnal, but Graham Cook said this. I'll just quote him. He said, this is the one time in my life I finally figured out that it doesn't suck to be a Gentile. Because <laughs> I don't have to keep all those laws. I don't have to do all that stuff. There's no measuring up involved here anymore. It's about grace. It's about Jesus handing me righteousness and imputing to me life and saying to me, here, have this. I love you. Can't wait for you to get off work so we can hang out some more. I want to be with you at work, but you're usually preoccupied, but I'm there. Okay, but when you get off, we'll talk in the car on the way home. What do you say? And let's go have supper. I'll introduce you to Lazarus. That'll rock your world. He's real. He's loving. And he says, I have grace for you. It's not about you measuring up anymore. And you didn't please me today. Therefore, I'm not going to talk to you. Ooh, that's not right. So we have a grace bias that we constantly have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We can walk right into the throne room of heaven in our worst day, in our worst condition. And he says, come on in. I love you. Been waiting all day to talk. Yeah, I know about that thing you want to talk about. And that really was horrible. And by, you know, but we're going to get over that. We're going to get over that. We're going to apply grace. You're going to say, forgive me. I'm going to say, I forgive you. I'm going to make it right for you. I know you're not strong in those times. And we need more of me alive in you, so let's work on that together. Very relational. Very loving. Very grace-bent. Not looking for a way to strike on you and move you out of his kingdom. He wants you in. I think these are good points this morning. And wouldn't the preacher pat himself on the back anyway, right? Hey, good job. Good job. It's, uh, I, tr I want to live like this. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to live like this. And I want to live like this with others who want to live like this. Life could be very pleasant. And then when, when our friend, I, you know, I kind of gesture at the empty chair. We're at, our friend isn't here today. Right? And there's difficulty there. Lost her son. But you got her sandwiched. Right? She knows she's loved. She knows she's cared about. She knows this isn't the end of everything. And she's going to be all right. Why? Because she's got some relational ministry going on for her. She's got support. Okay. I, I like this message, so I'll preach it again later to myself. <laughs> but you don't need to hear it twice, so I'm close. Father, thank you for your help this morning. I know I've uh, beleaguered this congregation, taken a lot longer than they expected. But I pray right now for a breakthrough in Revelation. Lord, take some of these stories and these accounts of your truth and transform us. Help us to come out from under the rule of law and man and have to and measure up.
to sit quietly in the midst of your grace and to be grateful for forgiveness and the infilling of your spirit that helps us live right with you. Show us the people around us in relational lifestyle that we can spend our days and times with encouraging and bearing each other's burdens and fulfilling your great law of loving one another. Help us to have our eyes and hearts open, as we sang earlier, to a spiritualistic view and to the kingdom perspective that is so important for us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.